Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are the great God. There is no one like you. You stretched out the heavens and you laid the foundations of the earth and you gave breath and life to Adam and Eve made in your image. And Lord, before the foundations of the world, you had in mind to make each one of us and to call us your own and to pour out your love and your mercy upon us so that our names would be written in the book of life so that we would escape the second death and be victorious with you over sin and evil. And we thank you for that great plan of redemption. And Lord, we thank you that you are the great God who is above even our great adversary, the devil. That your wisdom is greater than his schemes. Your power is greater than his efforts to destroy. Your love has conquered the evil that he seeks to do. And we praise you for these things. And we thank you for the church, this thing that you have given us to encourage us and nurture our souls and give us a, a place to belong and to love one another and practice the commands that you've given us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your church would be edified and blessed and encouraged, that the name of Jesus would be made great, and that you would grow our love for you. Amen. So when I lived in uh, Wheaton, Illinois, one of the things that was fun to do from time to time is you could hop on the train and you could ride the train down into the city of Chicago. And the city of Chicago has a lot of really cool museums. One of the cool museums is called the Field Museum. And it's this massive natural history museum, dinosaur bones and you know, Egyptian relics and those kinds of things. And one of the exhibits that you can find at the Chicago Field Museum is called the Savo Man-Eaters. Have you ever heard of the Savo Man-Eaters? If you've ever watched the movie Ghost and the Darkness, then maybe you know this story. These were a pair of lions that lived in Kenya, Africa uh, towards the end of the 18th century as the British were building a railroad across Kenya, these lions are said to have killed and eaten at least 135 people in the process of constructing that railroad. And the Field Museum has the actual taxidermized lions themselves. I threw a picture together for you in case you wanted to get an idea. If the computer will do what you tell it to do. All right, well, they'll try. If not, hey, all right. There they are, the Savo man-eaters. And they're uh, male lions, but for some reason they don't have uh, manes. I guess that's a kind of lion. But the, the, sale, the tale of the Savo man-eaters was recounted by a British lieutenant colonel named John Henry Patterson. He was leading the railway construction project. And the story goes that these lions acquired a particular taste for human flesh, and so they would raid the camps of the construction workers, breaking through the barriers that were set up, sometimes even running through fire that they put in place to try and keep them out in the night in order to stalk the workers and drag them from their tents in the darkness to kill them and devour them. Pretty terrifying, right? True historical story about the absolutely ferocious nature of lions. So check this picture out. The next picture I was in Kenya, Africa last year, 
and uh, I got to meet one of the ancestors of the Savo man-eaters out in the wild. Okay, I made that part up, okay? That's, that's not true. I wanted to say we hung out, but it's not true. But I got awfully close to a real wild lion in the Maasai Mara, not in a zoo, no fences, nothing like that, okay? And, you know, as you might expect, like, these are terrifying animals. I mean, when you see it in a zoo, you're like, oh, that's kind of cute, right? And then you go to the gift shop, and there's the cuddly one, and you buy it. That's not what this is, let me tell you. They are legitimately terrifying to see in the wild with no fence between you. And if that lion had decided that it wanted to eat me, there was nothing I could do about it. In fact, at one point, our safari vehicle broke down, and like for like three hours, we're just standing in the middle of this field and like we were lunch if this lion had wanted to eat us. So it makes sense then that when Peter wants to give us a picture of what our great adversary and enemy, the devil, is like, what does he do? He gives us a picture of a lion. So let's read this together. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So as we look at these verses, I want to break it down into three parts. Yes, I think I pulled a Leonard this week because I've actually managed to get my sermon into three parts with like a nifty sermony alliteration, which is like not typically my style. So in our verses this morning, we have a siren, we have a suspect, and we have a strategy, okay? The siren is our warning. The suspect describes our adversary, so we get a character description so we can be on the lookout. And the strategy gives us a plan for dealing with this enemy and staying safe. So the siren is that first sentence there, right? In verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. I think you could safely translate this because these are imperatives. And you could say something like, stay alert, watch out. The spiritual danger that you and I face as Christians is not a passive danger, my friends. It's not merely like a pit in the path that we're walking as we journey towards Jesus that we might fail to notice and sort of accidentally fall into. That would be bad enough. But our situation as believers is far more perilous than that. The danger we face is not a passive pitfall we might slip into. Rather, the danger that Peter tells us we are facing is an enemy who is like a hungry lion stalking us cleverly in the night. And I think the way that Peter connects the siren warning, be watchful, with this command, be sober-minded, gives us an indication of the kind of watchfulness that we need, okay? To be watchful and sober-minded is a warning for us to be vigilant and watchful regarding our own actions. 
Yes, of course, we need to be watchful for our adversary. But even more than that, when Peter talks about the adversary, what has already come before it is this warning to be sober-minded. I think that means to watch ourselves. You know, I remember the same day that I took that picture of that lion. That night, we went and stayed at uh, the Safari Lodge. And it was quite literally like out on the Maasai Mara in the middle of nowhere on this game reserve, right? No more than 20 minutes away probably from where I snapped that picture of that lion. And after dinner, of course, our tent just happened to be the farthest one out from the lodge where you would eat. And so after dinner, we had to walk like 200 yards probably in the dark through the Maasai Mara back to our tent through these kind of winding paths that led beside a hedge. And do you know what I could see in the dark? Pretty much nothing. I don't don't think there were even lights on the path, okay? I could see pretty much nothing. The only thing that I could really watch out for and pay attention to was the path immediately in front of me and sort of where my own feet were falling as I walked. And if a lion had snuck up on me in those moments, like I never would have made it back to the tent alive. I would not have even known until it was too late. What I had control over, though, was staying on the path and watching where I was placing my feet so I didn't trip and fall. I could be sober-minded and alert so that I kept heading towards the destination that I needed to go and not putting myself at risk to fall or putting myself in a position where I would be even more vulnerable, lost out in the middle of nowhere. So what I'm suggesting to you with this illustration is that although you don't know where your next spiritual attack might come from, you certainly have the power right now, you have the power today, to place yourself in greater or lesser danger when the moment of that attack attack eventually comes. Right now, you have the option to walk one path or another. Be watchful over your own life. Consider the kinds of thoughts that you allow to enter your head, that you entertain, that you choose to dwell on. Think about your actions and the direction that you are currently heading in the decisions that you are making. Be alert. Be aware concerning your own habits that you are building that will build in you a kind of life over time. Keep your heart vigilant to stay on the path that leads you to Jesus and not to destruction. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 tells us, give no opportunity to the devil. And we strengthen ourselves against his attacks when we are feeding ourselves consistently on his word, when we're reading the scriptures. That's one of the reasons why we want you to have a Bible here at Maricopa Springs, and we would love to give you one. We keep watch over our souls when we're seeking not just to know God's word, but to actually obey God's word so that when temptation tries to draw us out into the darkness, we're not interested in going astray. We can also watch out for our souls 
and make sure that we're sober-minded by being connected in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're relatively new here to Maricopa Springs, we want you to have that app so you can see the ways that we want to invite you into our church community. But in this community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can find the prayer that we need for the journey that we're on. We can confess our sins to one another so that sin does not begin to trap us and deceive us. We can live in relationship with one another so we can be open and honest about our struggles and our fears and our needs. You know, we are never more vulnerable to attacks from the devil than when we are isolated and alone. When we have withdrawn from community and thought that we could be out there by ourselves. I really can't stress that enough. So let me say it again. A Christian who is disconnected from the community of Christ is in serious danger from the attacks of the enemy. As Christians, we need the body of Christ. We need one another. I remember years ago, maybe I've told this story before, but uh, Bank of America partnered with the British Broadcasting Corporation to put out a show called Planet Earth. And it was just an incredible TV show about just the glory of everything that God has made in creation on earth. Of course, they didn't see it that way, but that's, that's what they were doing. They were glorifying God. Um, but one of the scenes that unfolded in that show, I'll never forget. Uh, it was this scene about this group of elephants. What do, you, what do you call a group of elephants? A herd? Okay, a herd of elephants. And uh, they're in the dark, and this is all captured on film. And there's these lions. I know what that's called, the pride of lions, right? And the pride of lions is like hunting these elephants in the dark. And so the elephants all come together because in this tight community, they're safe. The lions can't really do much damage. And so what do the lions do? Well, in the dark, they run around and they roar and they try to spook the group of elephants so that they can get one of them out alone and isolated. And in the video, eventually they succeed. One of the elephants runs off from the community. And, of course, what ends up happening is the lions devour the elephant. And so a big part of staying alert and watching out is staying connected to other Christians. Not finding yourself alone and isolated as you seek to follow Jesus. You will be devoured if you are severed from the body of Christ. So that's the siren, that's the warning telling us to stay alert and be watchful. What about this suspect who threatens us? Peter gives a description, right? He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I want you to notice that Peter says the devil is whose adversary? Your adversary. The devil is not God's adversary. God has no adversaries because God has no rivals. There is none like him. It's important that you understand that Christianity is not a, a religion that believes in dualism. 
like Buddhism or Hinduism. We do not believe that there's like a good force in the world and then there's sort of like an equally but opposite bad force in the world and they're in opposition with one another. We do not believe that there is a God and then equal to him is the devil who is his opposite. That's not Christianity. No, the devil is quite literally nothing in comparison to God. In fact, the devil is himself a created being. Created by God, but fallen into corruption and evil. And so God who made the devil from nothing can unmake him like that. No problem. And as you heard in our scripture reading, the Bible tells us that the doom of the devil is already guaranteed. It's already secured. It's already finished on that future day when Christ destroys him fully and finally. And so the devil is not a threat to God. That should encourage you. His devices are not greater than the work of God. But the devil is indeed our adversary. He is your adversary, doing all that he can do to devour you. And that's another important point for us to see here. Peter says, the devil is your adversary. Which means that nobody in this room is your adversary. Aren't you thankful for that? You know, the church is often tragically destroyed from the inside, not the outside. It's often conflict between people in the church that brings it to ruin, not some assault from outside. Because the devil, who is the great deceiver, gets in among our community and sows these seeds of deception and destruction and conflict so that we begin to forget that he, he is our adversary. And instead, we begin to bicker and fight and treat one another as adversaries. Think of those elephants again being terrorized by those lions running around outside of them. And, and what happens, they begin to push and shove one another in fear and self-concern, trying to get closer and closer to the inner circle, but in doing that, shoving others away. And eventually one feels isolated and alone. As if the elephants were the problem, but not the lions. So let me be perfectly clear here on a couple things, okay? The elders of Maricopa Springs are not your adversary. We love you. We care about you. We may, from time to time, have to say difficult things to you, but we're not your adversary. That person that you sometimes disagree with in Bible study, who says things that, you know, kind of rub you the wrong way sometimes, that person is not your adversary. They are actually your brother or your sister in Christ. That person maybe even here in this room who you struggle to get along with for whatever reason, they are not your adversary. Actually, through the work of the Holy Spirit that unifies the body of Christ, they are what you might call a friend in Jesus. Your spouse is not your adversary. They are God's instrument in your life for your sanctification and also hopefully for your comfort. Even this cricket over here is not our adversary. I want you to understand 
that it is the devil who is your adversary. And so let us not waste our time and our strength fighting one another, fighting our brothers and sisters in Christ, doing his work for him as we divide from one another. Our battle is not against each other. It is against him. And so the Bible warns us not to bite and devour and participate in the work that he is doing to destroy. Then we're told that the suspect we're fighting against, our adversary, is the devil. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think we tend to make one of two errors as we think about our adversary, the devil, okay? Either we perceive him being way too powerful. Ever been around people like this? Um, who, you know, sort of think that the devil is behind every bad thing that happens? Or we maybe swing to the other error, the other side, which is that we basically don't think he has any power at all. We sort of diminish him into, you know, a fictional figure like Santa Claus or something like that. And both of those errors are dangerous. Either giving him way too much credit, seeing him as the mastermind of all bad things, or giving him no credit at all as if he doesn't exist. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Peter compares him to a lion, which is one of the apex predators of the animal kingdom. He's deadly. He's sneaky. He's cunning and vicious. He is like one of the Savo man-eaters with a taste for human flesh and a devouring appetite. He would love nothing more than to succeed in destroying you. He's eager to draw you away so that he might isolate you. And so do not underestimate the power of the devil, as Jesus says, to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't be ignorant of his devices to tempt and deceive and corrupt. But at the same time, notice what Peter says in verse 9, where he begins to give us this strategy. How do we deal with the devil who wants to destroy us. Simply resist him. Resist him is what Peter says. James says it even more explicitly in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because of the much power of God, much greater power of God that is in us through the Holy Spirit, because of the conquering victory of Jesus that is already secured as our hope in the future, the devil is already defeated. So you know what he makes me think of? It makes me think of a menacing lion shadow that when you find the origin looks a lot more like this. Right? This is the devil, certainly dangerous and cunning, and vicious, but the shadow he casts is much greater than his actual nature in light of who Jesus is. He's more like a domesticated cat. And I mean, this is a really crazy thought. As powerful and terrible as the devil is, because of the greater strength that is in you through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, all it takes to overwhelm the devil in his devices is to Resist him. 
firm in your faith. It's as simple as that. Doesn't it seem almost too simple? Now, I remember at one point while I was in Kenya and I was teaching to this group of Maasai pastors, okay? And they live out in the, in the wild, the plains where all the wild animals live. And I said to a large group of them during my teaching that the devil was like a terrible lion, but all we have to do is resist him. And you know what they did? They burst into laughter, right? These are people who for countless generations have lived among lions in the wild. And so they, they knew how crazy it was that I was claiming the devil's like a lion, just resist him, right? And so I'm like, well, why are you laughing at this? And so they looked at me and they said, Grady, what man can resist a lion? Like, you fool, I don't know where you live, but lions actually live here and we see them, we deal with them. And I hadn't yet gone on safari, so I hadn't yet seen these lions in person, but I, I got the humor when they explained it to me, right? But you know what I said in response? Jesus, right? Jesus can resist the devil. What man can stand against a lion? Christ can. If the devil is like a lion, Jesus is greater still. Jesus did resist him and can resist him and will resist him and eventually, finally, and fully will destroy him. And they stopped laughing and they began nodding their heads, right? Okay, I get it. And so Peter says, resist the devil firm in your faith. He doesn't say resist the devil by working really hard. He says resist the devil firm in your faith. And that is the key, my friends. It is not you or I or even a courageous Maasai warrior who lives among lions, who has the strength in themselves to stand against the schemes of the devil. To resist the devil is to place our faith firmly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has already, he told us at the end of Matthew, been given all dominion and all authority in heaven and on earth, material and spiritual, all things bow to the voice of Jesus Christ. And so to resist the devil in your own power, in your own strength, sounds like more than you could ever do on your own. But think about this. Resistance is a difficult act. But do you know what's an easy act? Surrender. So how do you resist the devil? You simply surrender to Jesus. Now, I grant that resistance is difficult, but surrender is easy. Don't give yourself over to the one who would devour you. Give yourself over to the one who loves you. Don't give yourself up to the schemes of the devil. Give yourself up to the mercy of Jesus. And so we resist the power of the devil who is greater than us by surrendering ourselves over in faith, in trust to the one who is greater than the devil. Don't allow the devil to rule you or put fear in your heart. Fear only Jesus and let him rule your heart. Trust not in your own power because you are weak. 
you would be over, easily overcome by the strength and the cunning of the evil one who is as great as a lion seeking to devour you. Instead, trust in Jesus who has overcome all things. And so my friends, I mean this when I say this to you. Christianity is really as easy as this. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Do everything that he asks you to do. Be firm in your faith. Trust his love for you. Trust his care. Embrace your weakness so that you can embrace the strength that he wants to offer you. The devil has no authority where Christ rules and reigns. And so give the devil no opportunity by giving yourself over to the one who is greatest of all, Jesus, the Son of God. Let your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole life be wholly his so that everything that you are, everything that you desire, everything that you have, everything that you trust is only all for him. So the strategy that Peter offers us for dealing with the devil is to be firm in our faith, which is to say that we place our trust in the one who has proven himself to be trustworthy, Jesus. He's an anchor for our souls in those seasons when the storms are great and strong, when temptation comes and suffering seems to win over us. And when I say trust him, I want you to know that I'm not talking about some just idea in your head where you say, yes, yes, I, I know Jesus and I trust him. To trust Jesus is really to do what he says. It's really to believe that what he has commanded is for your good. To build your life every day on his teaching as you seriously seek to do the things that he has instructed those who love him to do. To trust him means we walk through suffering, loving our enemies and praying for them instead of hating them, cursing them. Why? Because that's what Jesus said that we must do. And we believe that his way is best. To trust Jesus means that we forgive those who have wounded us. Why? Because that's what Jesus said that we must do. And we really believe that what he taught us to do is what is best for us. To trust Jesus means that we agree with what the Bible teaches us. Why? Because God gave his word to encourage us and to make us wise and to guide us. And we really believe there's nowhere else that we could go to find life and truth and wisdom. So to have faith is to hold fast to Jesus, to believe and to live as if the best thing that we can do in any situation is simply do what Jesus taught us to do. And I love the two things that Peter does here at the end of verse 9. He talks about what we know and he talks about others. He reminds us of others. And this too is part of the strategy. If we're honest, when things get hard, what are we really tempted to do? We're tempted to do what feels good instead of doing what we know to be right. 
But we have to reject the feelings that tempt us away from Jesus who loves us. And we need to follow what we know to be true because it's what Jesus taught us. What we know to be true is that Jesus is trustworthy. And that's what we need to follow. Not what our heart might feel, but what we know to be true. And Peter knows one of the ways that we get our mind off of our feelings is to stop thinking about ourselves. We talked about this a little bit last week. Thinking about ourselves only tempts us away from Jesus. It makes us anxious and fearful, insecure, or maybe even proud. And so what does Peter say here? He says, remember others. Remember your brothers and sisters suffering throughout the world. Think about them. And his point here is not to get us to think about ultimately their suffering, because if you think about how crummy the world is, that might tempt you to feel despair rather than be encouraged. Peter's point here is simply get out of your own head. Think about somebody else. Consider others. And this actually connects back to our discussion from last week about humility, doesn't it? Central to the Christian faith is this idea. Stop thinking about yourself. There's no hope there. There's no peace there. There's no joy there. There's only anxiety and discontentment and a sense of need for more and more and more. You are not the only one who is being hunted by the adversary, the devil. He is seeking to devour all of us. And other people in this room need your care and your concern and your love and your prayers. The devil succeeds in his work of trying to steal and kill and destroy when he gets us to be the kind of people who think only about ourselves and our own problems and our own issues rather than thinking about Christ who is great and above all and thinking about others, our neighbors, who we're called to love and serve. There is a great freedom from our burdens found in self-forgetfulness. There's a great freedom from your burdens found in forgetting about yourself. <sighs> Let's see if I can get through this next story without shedding some tears. Because last week, my brother called me, and I've told a few of this story, a few of you this story already. But my brother called me. He's a pastor at a church back in the Midwest. And uh, he called me just weeping on the phone. And my, my brother's a tough guy. He played football. He, he's not much of a crier. And uh, he called and he, he said, great, I just need you to pray for me and pray for my church. And he was weeping. And um, I said, yeah, I'd love to pray for you. What's going on? He said, there is a young couple in my congregation and their three-year-old son just drowned. And... This couple is devastated, and I've spent the last four days just with them, just crying. And he drowned in this lake, and he drowned when the parents were absent, and the little boy was under the care of the grandparents. And all of these families attend his church, and you can just imagine the devastation, right? 
the parents are devastated, the grandparents are devastated, there's an obvious potential rift in their relationship, and it's just hard to even imagine a more tragic situation. And my heart was just broken, right? I mean, this isn't even my grief, but my heart was broken. And I can honestly tell you that hearing that story, I've thought very little about my own problems over the last week. Why? Because my heart has been broken for these other people and I have just been praying for them. I keep praying for God's grace for the parents and grace for the church and grace for my brother and grace for those grandparents. That God would just be in that and minister and redeem an awful situation. And I found a humbling freedom in forgetting myself for a little while to pray for somebody else. And we know what could possibly heal the great wound that now exists between these parents and these grandparents. Like some people would say, there is no way to ever overcome something like that. Well, we believe that the power of Jesus can work to help the parents resist the temptation of the devil to hate and to blame. And instead, stop thinking about their grief and think about the fact that the grandparents themselves must be devastated in their own grief. The power of Jesus can do that work to conquer the divisive effort of the enemy. And the power of Jesus can help the grandparents resist the temptation of the devil to just give themselves over to shame and to guilt and to be in despair that this thing happened under their watch. And the power of Jesus can cause them instead to consider the pain of the parents suffering in their loss and to seek to reach out and love them and minister to them. And what can comfort my brother's church in the midst of this tragedy? Only the power of the body of Christ to set aside individual problems and come together to love on this family for a while, to pray for them and support them in their time of sorrow and need. You know, last week I said that humility comes by looking to Jesus, right? Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to him. And in light of his greatness, you will see yourself as small and you will be humble rightly before God. Now we need to add to this recipe. Look to Jesus and stop thinking about yourself and look to others and stop thinking about yourself. We gain victory over our adversary by first looking to Christ and then second, looking to others. Caring for our neighbors instead of only caring for ourselves. And this is one of the great messages of the cross, isn't it? That Jesus fixed his eyes upon the greatness of the Father and in doing so, then he was willing to think of others and give his life for you. And for me. And in this way, he won victory over the devil.